So we come to the end of our series, week six. What a journey we have been on. We have fixed our eyes on God. We've planted our feet and our roots deep into grace. We've committed to one another as a covenant people. We are pursuing the kingdom of God as Jesus builds his church. And hopefully through the weeks, through the time in our devotions, you've been working out some of the nitty-gritty of this as a grace-filled community. That's our hope. But we're going to look a bit of, at a bit of that nitty-gritty now. You see, how do we cope with our imperfections? What a glorious vision we have to seek the kingdom of God. Isn't it amazing that we are image-bearers and built for relationship, created for relationship with God, and that the Father seeks that relationship. How amazing that the Holy Spirit is amongst us when we're gathered and when we're scattered. It's great to have that kingdom vision, but what about the nitty-gritty, the cold light of day when the church family lets us down, when leaders get it wrong, when our hopes of our glorious, spirit-filled community come up against the realities of the local church. Well, as every pop song tells us, all you need is love. Love is the answer. But what's the problem? Well, I am. The problem with the church is me. I'm imperfect. We talked last week about the now and not yet of the kingdom. And we talked about the different areas of the kingdom. Salvation, sanctification, signs and wonders, social action. And the now and not yet of the kingdom is true of all of those areas, including my sanctification, your sanctification. We are totally justified by the righteousness of Christ, Romans 3, 22. We are loved by the Father with the same weight that he loves the Son, John 17. We are hidden in Christ, Colossians 3, 1 to 4. We are seated with Christ in heavenly places, Ephesians 2, verse 6. We are totally accepted by God and can approach the throne of God with adoration and awe and without fear of condemnation. Hebrews 10, 19-25. But we are still being transformed from one degree of glory into another by the Spirit. 2 Corinthians 3, 18. This means that although I am a bit more like Jesus in my character than I was a year ago, or even a day ago, I'm not yet fully formed into the character of Christ. God the Father treats me as if I was, receives me as if I was. But in the nitty-gritty of the flesh, I am not yet fully like Jesus. You don't need me to remind you of that. And that would be fine. But unfortunately, those bits of me that are not yet like Jesus bump up against those bits of you that are not like Jesus, and that's not great. Scripture promises us, Proverbs 27, 17, that iron sharpens iron. The trouble is that when iron sharpens iron, there are sparks, and the bits of you and the bits of me that are not like Jesus are called wood and straw. And when you combine straw and a spark, poof flames appear what do we do about that 
How do we make sure that in this vision and value series, in our desire to be who we are in Christ and see the kingdom of God come, how do we make sure that we're not derailed by these imperfections? We need to remember that church is like family. The phrase brothers and sisters or beloved, translated from the Greek adelphoi, occurs over 120 times in the New Testament. That phrase, brothers and sisters, siblings, is the most common description of Christians in the New Testament. Paul writes to the brothers and sisters. James writes to the brothers and sisters. Peter writes to the brothers and sisters. It's why we can legitimately talk of the church and speak of the church as a family or a household. It makes sense to think of the church as family because of all these references to siblings. Peter even talks about treating older members of the church as mothers and fathers. Those of our peers as brothers and sisters. And sometimes we can go, when we hit some imperfection, when we hit some conflict, I'll sometimes say, I've heard other people say, oh, I thought the church was meant to be a family. To which the answer is, exactly. It is. Families are messy. I've had six fights in my life. Five of them with my sister. She won all of them. The nature of family is that we know them best, they know us best, therefore our true character comes out, therefore sometimes the sparks fly. And that is true about the church. If we're looking to build an authentic family feel in the church with vulnerability and failure and openness and honesty, there will be conflict. And that's why the church in Corinth is so helpful. See, the church in Corinth is a classic example of a community formed in grace by the gospel, established by the power of the Holy Spirit, that could be called a family and is all over the place. A church which has grown and is spirit-filled, but that is in danger of losing its way because they're imperfect. And into this real-life situation, Paul writes, possibly one of the most famous parts of Scripture. A part of Scripture that, even those who don't go to church, often hear, because it's read at weddings. And it's, of course, 1 Corinthians 13. Let's unpack it together against this context of handling our imperfection. Paul says, If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Now we know from the context of this passage, from chapters 12 and chapters 14, that amazingly come before and after chapter 13, that Paul is a huge advocate of spiritual gifts. In a few verses' time, he will say, eagerly desire the gifts of the Spirit, especially the prophetic. Paul has a heart, huge heart, for the poor. 
In Galatians, when he reminds us of the conversation he had with Peter and the other disciples, they agree that the one thing they must always do is remember the poor. So Paul has this huge heart for the poor. He has this huge desire for spiritual gifts. And yet he says here that whatever your heart for the poor, whatever your application of spiritual gifts, if you do not have love, it's totally worthless. He doesn't say it's of some worth. He doesn't say love is more important than gifts. But if you can get the gifts, that's great. Or love is more important than giving to the poor, but give to the poor. No, he says, if you don't have love, everything else is worthless. Paul is being emphatic here. Love must be our foundation, our motivation, and our goal. And then he goes on to describe it. Verse 4, love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast. It is not proud, it does not dishonour others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Wow. I'm sure, that, I'm sure there are other passages in Scripture that are as rich as those four verses. But this is one of the richest. I've heard preachers encourage us to replace our name in this passage. Where the word love appears, they say, put the name Simon I'm not sure I'm up to the challenge. Um, Simon is patient. I don't get past there, to be honest. These verses don't need unpacking. They need imbibing. They need soaking in. Don't you want to be part of a community like this? Don't you want to make it your life goal to pursue this sort of character? What then do we do with these verses? How do we imbibe them? How do we soak in them? How do we take them from the page into our hearts, our minds, and into the realities of life? Well, I think the first thing that helps me, hopefully it will help you, is I have to remember that they set an impossible standard. Relationship counsellors encourage their clients to avoid absolutes when they are discussing their partner's failings. They say, try not to use words like always and never. Try to ask questions rather than make statements. Clearly Paul has not received such teaching in how he's trying to help the Corinthian church with their relationships. In seeking to remind this Corinthian church and community of their calling in Christ, Paul confronts them with a series of statements on love. And this is intentional. It is intentional because Paul does not want them to think that they will restore their community based on human effort or endeavour. See, what does Paul actually do? Paul does not say, in love, try to be patient. Or in love, try to be kind. Or in love, try to hold no record of wrongs. Or in love, try to persevere. Or in love, no, he says this. He says, love is. See, Paul is not defining them, he's defining love. 
He's not defining me and you. He's defining love. This is a spirit-filled community. This is God's people. God's design for his church is only possible, Paul is saying, if God's love is at the heart of that community. And hence, Paul actually uses a new word for love. In the Greek language, the language of the New Testament, there were multiple words for love. You had eros, which spoke of sexual love, philia, which spoke of friendship, storge, that spoke of parental love. Paul, I suppose, could have used philia or possibly storge in this letter. Instead, he chose the least common word, agape. Agape love. A word that spoke of the love of God, the love an individual had for the divine and the love that operated within the divine. It was used so sparingly in Greek literature at the time that it's actually quite hard for us to know whether this meaning has been developed by its use within the church because it's this word that the church would then use to describe love. Either way, it's Paul's deliberate choice and one made with purpose. Paul is describing God. Paul is describing the love of God. Paul is describing what God is forming in us. Maybe this week, cast your eye over Galatians 5 and the fruit of the Spirit and see how the fruits of the Spirit match up with this definition of love and you'll get a glimpse of what Paul is saying. Paul is saying the love that gets you through is the love that God is giving and is growing in you. This is not some impossible standard for you to aspire to. This is something for you to receive and grow in. And in that way, yes, we do aspire because we long for this love to grow deep in us as individuals and as a community. You see, what agape does is it reminds us again of our dependence on God. Does that sound familiar? That's who we are. This series is about who we are, and who we are is image bearers, created in the image of God, and who we are are people dependent on God, on his love, on his presence through the Holy Spirit. So, of course, we're going to be dependent on God's love growing in us and through us. It is agape love that reached out to us. It is agape love that called us by grace. It is agape love which is the foundation of who we are. And so these verses challenge us, but they should also inspire us. We know that the fallibility of our love in the present, in the now, will eventually be caught up in the not yet. We know that in glory, love will flow. Love will be perfected. There will be no conflict because we will be pure. The straw and the wood, we're told, will be consumed. I am so looking forward to that. So looking forward to not facing the challenges of daily imperfection. So we can look to that moment And we can rejoice, but we can also prophetically reveal to the world now what that love looks like. It was said of the early church that what amazed those not part of it was the fact of how they loved one another. 
And notice it doesn't say they were amazed by the church because of how they agreed with one another. Because if you read the New Testament, you can see that so often they don't agree. There is conflict. So surely what's being commented on is not the fact that there was no disagreement, it's the fact of how they handled their disagreement. Friends, we set an unrealistic expectation if we think we'll never disagree, if we think there'll never be conflict in the church, if we think we'll never fall out with one another. The issue is not our imperfection. The issue is how do we allow the love of God to cover our imperfection? Christians will disappoint one another, but how do we get over that disappointment? How do we apply the love and grace of God to that disappointment? The love of the early church was clearly displayed in how they worked out their failings and imperfection, not because they pretended they didn't have any. So this love that Paul introduces is the very love of God. It lifts our head. It's what God is forming in us through the fruit of the Spirit. It should speak to the world around us. But notice this as well. It has forgiveness at its core. Notice the foundation of forgiveness in so much of this description. Let me read it to you again. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It does not dishonour others, it is not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs, does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. And always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. So much of the outworking of agape love is the ongoing forgiveness of one another's imperfections and the way they've caused us pain. In being patient, love forgives all those little annoyances. In not envying, love forgives the unfairness of life that seems so arbitrary, where some are blessed and others not. In not boasting or being proud, love forgives the lack of praise and encouragement from another and so removes the need to do it oneself. In not being easily angered, forgiveness tempers irritation. In keeping no record of wrongs, ongoing forgiveness refuses to let bitterness and disappointment build up to the point of harm and disunity. In always protecting the other, trusting the other, hoping in the other and persevering in the other, other love forgives forwards. See, forgiveness can be reactive and proactive. It can forgive what has happened, but it can choose to forgive ahead of time that which might happen and so stir hope in our hearts. Agape love is about forgiveness. But of course it is. It's the love of God. And the root of the love of God is his forgiveness of us. God does not treat us as our sins deserve. God remembers our sin no more. God is slow to anger and abounding in love. God separates our sin from us as far as the east is from 
the west. God forgives us to the extent that our sins, though they are scarlet, become white as snow. How do we handle our imperfections? By allowing the love of God and the forgiveness contained therein to transform our hearts. How many of us cannot be challenged by the parable of the unmerciful servant? This week in devotions, spend some time in that parable. Let it speak to your heart. Spend also some time looking at communion, the love feast, the agape feast, and see how Jesus and Paul remind us that to receive the bread and the wine, we must first make sure that we are in unity with our brother and sister in Christ through forgiveness, through love. Love is the ultimate definition of who we are as a Christian community. We are image bearers and therefore we carry the love of God applied to us and in us for other people. Love defined by the character of God defines us and protects us. It's no wonder, therefore, that Jesus summarized the whole of the Old Testament law through love. Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbour as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. And so, friends, we come to the end of this journey. The Christian life is about rhythm. It's about the faithfulness and blessing of God being new every morning. It's about walking with God in the cool of the evening and then laying our heads down to sleep in the sure and certain knowledge that God who watches over us neither slumbers or sleeps. Winston Churchill famously said after a key victory in the Second World War, one at huge cost to the individuals who gave their life, that it was not the beginning of the end, it was merely the end of the beginning. This six weeks feels a little like that. We've probably not said anything new. The words we have focused on, Son, Father, Spirit, Grace, Community, Kingdom and Love, are not the only words we could have highlighted. But we have sought to unpack them from Scripture, rooting ourselves in the truth of the Word of God. We have endeavoured to see how catching a true vision of God and His Kingdom purposes really does impact the day-to-day of our lives. We have tried to see and work out in our devotions how the spiritual disciplines as key practices root our identity and our vision in the nitty-gritty of life. We have hopefully reminded ourselves that the church gathered and the church scattered are of equal importance and are indeed symbiotic. Corporate worship matters because we're worshippers, so, but so does work because work is worship. When we gather, we gather to extol God and be equipped for kingdom lifestyles. When God is present amongst us, we can pray for and expect sanctification and salvation in our meetings through the preaching of the gospel 
and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. We have kept reminding ourselves of who we are and of why we're here. We are Everyday Church. We are a community of grace where everyone matters and where every day matters to God. We fix our eyes on an extraordinary God who loves us with an eternal love and roots that love in the dust of our lives through the incarnation of Jesus. The extraordinary meets the ordinary in Christ. And through the presence of the Holy Spirit, our ordinary hours and days and weeks are transformed by the extraordinary power of the kingdom of God. We are one church in multiple venues. We are one church, not because we all agree all the time or because we all do everything in the same way. We are not a brand or a franchise We are the body of Christ, a covenant community with our unity sealed in the body and the blood of Jesus. We work together, serving our communities and recognizing that though our vision and our core values are the same, how they are worked out will depend on our unique cultures and the circumstances we encounter as venues and as households. Our identity is in God. We are image bearers and kingdom bringers. God has placed us in this generation to give him glory and to see his kingdom come on our bit of earth as it is in heaven. We are image bearers and kingdom bringers. Our identity is in God and we are here for God. Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you for your grace expressed in Christ. Thank you that you loved us so much, you sought us out. And you love us so much, you continue to sort us out. Help us, Lord, in this coming year to follow you more closely and to see your kingdom break out wherever we are for your glory and for our blessing. Amen.